Wisdom from the Father. God would walk with Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden every day and he'd tell them about the wonderful creation that he created for them. In this way, he filled their hearts with knowledge about who he was, about who they were, in a perfect relationship with himself and with one another. And he told them how much they were loved. He didn't have to teach them any rules or regulations to instruct them in moral or ethical choices concerning their relationships to one another because that was perfect. So he didn't have to instruct them in the relational wisdom of the Ten Commandments. Not there in the garden with them. Because he'd only given them one commandment and that was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that would bring to the surface what had to come next. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve disobeyed this critical commandment and this permanently damaged their relationship with God and with one another. At that moment, humanity gave entrance to the destructive forces of broken and disordered relationships. Darkness had simply tempted them to sin grievously against the greatest of all God's values for his earthly family, that of loving and trusting relationships. They had failed to trust the one who was the source of everything concerning who they were and what was theirs. They and their descendants would from now on struggle with a damaged conscience concerning the difference between good and evil, because they went and ate from that tree. And that damaged conscience was to go on for many thousands of years and still exists in the human mind and heart, a damaged conscience because of a distorted understanding of good and evil. The heart of mankind was filled with the mistrust of God. Humanity had become separated in its mind from the knowledge of God and had begun to find other options to replace God with gods of its own choosing and its own making. People began ambitiously struggling to fashion their own identity and destiny and their soul found no rest in this separated state of mind. They also began to mistrust one another and to do one another violence and harm, to steal from one another, to lie to each other, and about one another. In due time, God spoke to another man called Moses on the top of a mountain and he gave him, for that time, the solution to all of this relational damage and harm that people had been doing to themselves for over 2,000 years. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments, which was God's wisdom concerning how to heal and restore and strengthen relationships between God and mankind and between people with one another. These relationships would be lovingly defined and wisely regulated by a loving Father God. So Moses would have the task of overseeing the instruction of the commandments to God's people Israel for 40 years in their journey through the wilderness after God had miraculously set them free from their 400-year bondage of slavery in Egypt. The Ten Commandments were purely and simply the wisest and most straightforward external means that God could use to regulate 
what was most precious to him in the lives of his people in their community. His nation, Israel. His big family. And that is loving, joyful and fulfilling relationships with himself and one another. Now everything else in life is secondary to this and grows out of this. Without a proper relationship to God, where are we? Without a proper relationship to one another and with one another, where is our community, our world? Where are the ethics and the morals and the integrity? God also spoke intimately, some hundreds of years later, to a man called David, the king of Israel, whom the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. He was devoted to the wisdom of God that resided in the commandments. And he wrote powerfully in the Psalms about his longing for the wisdom of God's commandments to transform his heart and soul, not just to have boundaries and disciplines put into his life, but to transform him. And he writes in Psalm 19, verse 7, and he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's personal loving intervention into the lives of his people, Israel, was the prelude, the curtain raiser for the way humanity was being prepared to receive God himself in human form in the person of Jesus, who would personally reside within humanity, join us to himself forever. And Jesus embodied the ultimate truth of his father's commandments. Perfect relationship. And there came to mankind through Jesus a new way for this perfect wisdom concerning relationships to be grafted into the very being of the human heart and to make the heart willing, not just tell it what to do, to make it willing to relate lovingly to God as a father. I will put my spirit within you, a new heart I will give you, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. So that a willingness to relate lovingly to God as a father and to other people as Jesus did. Now Jesus also spoke of the commandments as being the expression of this perfect loving relationship between God and his people and between people and one another. And one day a, a religious lawyer asked Jesus which was the greatest commandment. And Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's pretty important. Jesus spoke life into his teaching of the commandments and he turned his emphasis of them from you shall not into you shall be transformed. The apostles then continued this New Testament emphasis of redeeming faith in their teaching of the commandments. 
It was prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be there would be a new life-giving way of living the commandments from a willing heart of faith through the loving work of Jesus. And this prophetic word from Jeremiah was also recorded for us in the New Testament as being for all of humanity, not only for Israel. And Jeremiah, that's written in Jeremiah 31 and, and repeated in Jeremiah 33. But we read in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and here we have this, this new covenant fulfilment. For this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no one will instruct his brother or teach his neighbour regarding knowing the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So what I'm going to present to you now are the commandments from commandment 1 through to commandment 10 as a brief review. And it's going to be a reading of the words of love and wisdom that I believe our God would speak to us today. How we can understand them. And the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God and the next six will deal with our relationships with one another. So I'm going to, first of all, read the commandment from Scripture, Exodus chapter 20, and then I'm going to share the transformational aspect of each commandment as I see it reflected in the Gospels and the New Testament Scriptures. You can see it everywhere in the New Testament about how they speak about the law being written on our hearts and how they speak about us being able to fulfil the just requirements of the law because of the spirit of life of Christ in us, all right? So number one, I am the Lord your God, you'll have no other gods before me. And God is saying, as a father, I alone, as your loving God, can give you a life that is worth living if you trust me and look to no other God. Depend fully upon me for wisdom and guidance in your life choices and for fulfilment in loving relationships. Even your demands for total independence from me or your stubborn rejection of me do not make me go away or stop me from intervening in your lives. He stays in charge. He has the mission to our hearts. Commandment two, you shall not make yourselves any idol or image or ever bow or worship in any way that image. For I, the Lord your God, am jealous of you. So then, the transformational presentation of that is, learn to accept that I give your life its true meaning, which is that you mean everything to me and I want to mean everything to you. I'm jealous for you and that means I don't want you to invent another self-conceived God instead of me. And don't create some self-image. Another identity that replaces the identity I have given you. I have created you in my image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then the reading... Only put God's name to something you know he is doing in you 
and through you. You'll know you've truly done this when you receive his peace in your heart through surrendering it prayerfully in faith for his will to be done in the matter. It is futile to presumptuously use God's name to promote your own projects. And if you do this, you must own it and take all the consequences of your presumption. In the same way, it is unethical to presume the use of other people's names and reputations for your own advantage. God's name has great authority and power and it reflects his very nature. So he desires that you learn to bear his name and allow people to see his nature and his power come through in the things that you do in his name. Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. God worked on his creation for six days and rested on the seventh day. He took this rest so that he can enjoy that creation with his new family in the earth. So learn to take time out from your constant work to draw aside and give time to be with him and enjoy his company and the company of your family and friends whom you love. In that time of rest in his presence, you will receive faith that he is working with you and for you for his will to be done in your life. You will go out from that time of rest with peace in your heart, giving thanks to him for his grace upon you and his provision for you. That's your Sabbath. Now, the next six commandments deal with our relationships between one another. Number five, honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land. It's good and right for children to honour and obey their parents, despite the parents' imperfections. And the Bible also says that parents should not provoke their children to frustration and anger. That's in Ephesians chapter 6. Parents can impart wisdom and understanding of life principles through good instruction and especially by good example. And God will bless through a secure authority like that that serves, but not one that is insecure and self-serving because self-serving authority is ultimately rebellion against God's loving authority that serves his people. That's what authority is for. That's faithfulness. Under secure and caring authority, children can then hopefully learn to respect and trust the authority that God has placed over them in other areas of life and become responsible and accountable in their decision-making. They will in time become equipped to give others help and wisdom and guidance and will do well in life and people will trust in them and walk in the way of peace instead of in suspicion and anger or resentment. And this can help these ones as they grow to exercise caring and competent authority towards other people in their area of influence in life. Number six, you shall not kill. No one likes to be around angry and suspicious people because anger and violence leads to killing relationships. And that is what leads to killing other people. People can learn to accept others for who they are and to build friendships with kindness and trust. 
If we can learn to see people made in God's image, we see them not just as an object, but as a person, but are worth something wonderful to God. So when people learn to accept others and build these friendships, they begin to gain control over emotional reactions and become a reconciler and be ready to forgive people when they don't live up to expectations. How necessary that is these days. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Now the strict definition of adultery is unlawful sexual activity in marriage with married people. However, Jesus expanded this definition to include the inner attitude of the heart of wrong desire and wrong intent and not only the outward activity when he said but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart that's in Matthew chapter 5 this lustful intent is simply self-gratification and is a form of unfaithfulness we can be unfaithful at any level of committed relationship. So this goes outside of marriage. That was the strict definition. But areas of unfaithfulness come at any level of committed relationships, whether it's towards God or in friendships or even in work relationships, where a person can be disloyal to their employer, not put in a faithful performance. That's also cheating. That's part of that commandment. God's love for us is a commitment of loving sacrifice. And his love for us remains faithful even when we're unfaithful to him. Now there's your transformational aspect. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 says that. He wants to reveal his loving faithfulness to us so that we can be drawn to him and drawn away from harmful, self-gratifying habits. You see... When you're being drawn to God because of his faithfulness, you get drawn away from sin. And so then a person can become free to become fulfilled in a faithful relationship to God and to others. This is the pathway of return for many prodigal sons and daughters, I believe in the days in which we live, to be drawn to God and away from the other. And they get drawn to the embrace of a loving father where they learn the value of a loving relationship and they are given a sense of worth. Pray for that into our nation, into our age, into our culture. Number eight, you shall not steal. Stealing happens when a person loses sight of the worth of other people and what belongs to them. People are just objects. And in time... These people finally lose sight of their own worth as a person. God desires to touch the life of that person, to show them that they're of greater worth and value to God than all the other forms of creation that is placed in the earth. And that if he feeds the birds of the air and beautifies the flowers of the field, how much more does he want to provide for them? Matthew chapter 6. God wants to teach us all to value other people as he values them. See his value upon another person and to value what other people have worked honestly for. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share and to give with anyone in need. This is how God transforms people from being takers into becoming appreciated by others as givers. All the commandments are transformational. The New Testament brings that truth of grace and transformation into the thou shalt nots. It is thou shalt become. You shall become. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. Satan is called a liar and the father of it. And the power that he wields starts with his own self-deception and ends with his deceiving of others. He told the first lie that was ever told on earth, which led to the destruction of mankind's relationship with God. He told them that God had deceived them by saying that they would die if they ate of the tree. Satan lied to them, telling them that they would not die and that they'd been overlooked by God and deprived of his wisdom and spiritual and material provision. Well, they died. And all of that demonstrates the power of what is called false witness, to bring that into that sort of mistrust about another person. And this was about God. That lie causes the devaluing of another person's name and reputation and honour, which means demolishing their essential being and nature. And that's what we see so much today in our media, in our politics, in the social interactions of people, sadly. The person who lies never has to change because they never have to see themselves as they really are. They deceive themselves. It's everybody else's fault. God wants to show people who they really are and lovingly persuade them that they do need to change. Welcome it. <laughs> you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. They become set free from destroying their world with the power of lies and they become people who build their world with the power of truth and love, transformed. Pray for the grace of God to hit this nation. You can't just suggest this to people. This would be a good idea. There's got to be power in this from heaven. Number 10, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. When a person covets another person's identity or status or what they possess, they live out the lie of taking the things of someone else's life into the desolation and discontent of their own life and their own soul. They say, I'll have that as my source of who I am. They've forsaken God as being the source of their identity and blessing and fulfilment and replaced God with the identity or possessions or privileges of another person. That's really a deception. They've created another God a false god, an idol, into whose image they want to be formed. It's only when they can let God mercifully show them the futility of living the wrong life with the wrong goals that will only frustrate and torment their souls that they can graciously surrender to God's passionate and determined good will for their lives. This opens up for them a courageous, 
new horizon so that they become drawn towards this offer of God. And that drawing power is the heavenly energy of God's loving grace. Don't forsake me and my fulfilling and my assurance of who you are towards you by looking to what somebody else has got. Here, I want to open this up to you. A new future. Behold, I make all things new. God can show that person the futility of living the wrong life, pursuing imaginary goals. And he gives them the grace to surrender that past pursuit and sets before them the courageous new horizon, which gives them a future and a hope. Thank you, Lord, for the transformation that comes when we hear your word. As your word comes out of the Old Testament and through the cross into the resurrection and into the empowering of the spirit of life of Christ Jesus within us. We can expect whenever we are shown that we've missed the mark somewhere, we can expect to see a new horizon that comes out of your fatherly wisdom to us that restores the relational integrity that has gotten lost somewhere and brings grace for a new beginning. And we can say, thank you, Lord, for showing me I'm now free. I can recover myself out of the lie of the devil who's tried to take me captive at his will. And I can live in the truth. And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. In Jesus' name. Amen.